Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to Living Better in San Diego. I'm Vicki Pepper. Carlsbad author Josanne Wright Callender has just published a realistic historical fiction novel called Making Do, Growing Up Colored in the Jim Crow South, a book which forces us to reckon how racism continues to affect contemporary society. She's on the line to tell us more. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Vicki. I truly appreciate it. Josanne, last month we celebrated Juneteenth, the longest tradition of Black Americans celebrating the emancipation of the slaves in the U.S. More specifically, it marks the date that Texas, the last Confederate state, accepted the Emancipation Proclamation. In what way does your book preserve this important event? Well, Vicki, it's interesting that you should ask that question because just the other day or so I was looking at an interview of Opal Lee, and I found out that she was a school teacher who's now like 96 years old, and she was the one who was instrumental in getting Juneteenth as a national holiday. So I was looking at the connection between my being a teacher since retired, and what I thought about, my book connects with the history of our country, and it also connects with how Juneteenth has been celebrated. So for instance, I was looking in the Library of Congress, and they had really wonderful interviews with people who were just emancipated, and their, their emotions ran from disbelief this, this to extreme joy. And I kept thinking about how this book connects the history of my people with that of faith, because how they celebrated Juneteenth was by going to church, having praise celebrations. And one friend said that they were celebrating in her area by having like their Easter clothes on just as though they were going to church and having these praise meetings. And so my book incorporates the history of my people as well as that faith component. And I call it intersection between history and faith. And so that's how I see Juneteenth and that's what they can do growing up colored in the Jim Crow South during the Great Depression. Racism is intrinsically part of Black history, with a subtitle of Growing Up Colored in the Jim Crow South. Tell us how racism factors into your novel and how it informs today's readers of the various forms racism may take in today's society. Growing up in the Jim Crow South was really one of the most difficult topics to write about because I wrote this for young adults, and I was trying to think of how could I make this approachable. And since then, I found out not only young adults have enjoyed reading it, but it seems to also really, well, older adults as well. And 
one friend of mine who was like 84 years old said, you can't call this a young adult book. This is for everybody. But in particular, with the Jim Crow period, I read that it came about after President Rutherford Hayes withdrew all of the troops from the South after Civil War and after Reconstruction. And as they were all withdrawn at one time, there was no phasing in of local rule, just all of the federal troops were withdrawn. So the local rule went back, really, to like slavery time. And so people were pretty much lawless, and there were murders and lynchings. But what I saw as the most tangible thing that still relates to today is that emotional fear. And that's like an emotional slavery, in a, in a way. So with Making Do, I thought that I'd focus on this aspect of the Jim Crow South, the racism that causes the fear, that causes the stagnation, and the fear of doing anything, trying anything new. Or in, to some extent, it actually was the motivator of what brought people into that migration out of the South to the North looking for new jobs because Pullman porters would talk to each other and, and that information would get back into the community and people found out that there were some places up north that had jobs and didn't have the same kind of lawless characteristics that they saw in the South. So this book really draws on some of those conversations. I spoke with some of my elders and I have to say this book is loosely based on conversations with my elders as well as an homage to my parents because it sort of takes their early romance and I fictionalized it so that you could see this period through the eyes of this young African-American couple and what they did to flourish during this time of fear and of lawlessness and just wondering if from one point to the other would they be safe to walk down the street. So, you know, I believe that it in a lot of ways, it can really be relatable to people living today because we could see some of those same elements in today's movies. So, yes, I think it's very relatable. How does racism today mirror the racism of that period? Well, this is an interesting question because I looked at the racism at that time. It was horrendous. It was very evil. There were murders, lynchings, and emotional disparagement. You know, it's part of life. And in light of that, I thought about the police brutality that we've seen today, and which was pretty much the reason why BLM became a focus for a lot of us, for the country, the nation. I asked my two eldest relatives, because as I was writing this, I wanted my book to be relevant too. And I said, well, you know, looking at racism today and racism in the 40s, what can you say about them, the two? And both relatives told me, which really was surprising to me, that there was no comparison. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, for the most part, it's based on what other equal protections that we have as a race today were not being enforced at that time. It was just mob rule work, police brutality was just commonplace to the point that individuals didn't want to call the police if there was something going on that they thought wasn't fair or or right because they weren't really going to receive an equal or fair treatment from a lot of police officers in in those different districts. But one thing that I saw, too, is that there were differences in 
both of the, well, I have Dolores Douglas, who's living in a city, and I have Charles Stevens, my main character, who lives in the country. Well, Jefferson County was a one of the places where the Klan actually had a large Klanbert, I believe they called it, whereas that area was a hotbed of a lot of injustices and lynchings. Billingsley, where my character Charles Stevens comes from, which is the country, had relatively few of those interactions. And for whatever reason, they assumed that it's because the Klan wasn't as strong in this rural area. So I wanted to bring that to the fore in uh, the foreground when I wrote this book, that it wasn't every place was a hotbed, but certain areas had more difficulty than others. And also that I wanted my readers to focus on what the families taught both Dee Dee, which is Dolores Douglas, and Charles, which is Charlie Stevens, as I call them, that it's not so much about the race of the person, it's how this person's character is formed, and how does that character come out in their dealings with other people. So we tried to be very even-handed, and I was bringing a lot of that back into what I've learned from my parents into the story, because this is an homage to my parents and how they grew up and what they taught us, our family. And it really brought to mind what Dr. King had said, that you know, the content of the person's character that makes the difference, not the color of the skin. So, you know, I was trying to make that point as I wrote these different characters and in the story, which they're not all, of course, they're composites of people that I've known or I have met, but I think that they truly act and accurately reflect that particular period. And interestingly enough, <laughs> I was thinking, Vicki, that you know, I wasn't sure how well I depicted it, but I got a Kirkus review, and that was one of the things they gave me uh, kudos for, which is pretty unusual for Kirkus. It says, a well-drawn historical drama, and that my prose is methodic and rich, summoning the language and personality of her characters with a poem, as well as world-building detail. So I said, oh, okay, so someone got it, and that's exactly what I was aiming for. So uh, thank you. I, I really do believe it reflects racism, but it also puts a face on the individuals that are encountering this, this period in this type of treatment. I'm speaking with Josanne Wright Callender, author of Making Do, Growing Up Colored in the Jim Crow South. You say that the theme of this book is faith triumphing over fear. How do your characters manage to use their faith to overcome this very real and raw fear that racism and its challenges presented people of color during the 40s? Well, it was, like I mentioned before, not an easy writing task because I wrote this for young adults. I wanted it to be very realistic, yet you know, not as graphic as some of the uh, the other books that I've been reading as my, sort of like uh, doing my research. There were a lot of stories that I could have used more details, and especially in the Library of Congress. But what I thought was my characters, even though they knew that they didn't have equal protection under the law, they had formed tight communities, and it started with their families. And sort of similar to Neighborhood Watch, they would watch out for each other, and that they would take care of each other. They were definitely church-going people, and they would pray for each other. And so their whole attitude was that of knowing that there was someone greater than them that was watching over them and taking care of them. But they also knew that they had to take care of each other by being vigilant. And, for instance, 
home at night. No one walked home at night alone. They would always stay in groups and walk together. So they focused also on their futures, which I think is one of the best ways of showing faith. There has to be hope. And so they would listen for stories of where they could have a better future for their family. And one of those stories was going north, where there were more jobs and less of that Jim Crow spirit. Not saying that it was totally not in the north, but a lot less. So I think that, of course, this led to the Great Migration after Jim Crow period had ended, and also before. I would say it was probably started right after Reconstruction and went straight up to civil rights time. But I think my characters, they focused on more than anything else what they could do for the future generations. And that is the one point that speaks the loudest to me, that those shoulders I stand on, they have done an excellent job. They focus on education, being able to financially take care of your family and yourself. And so this is what comes out in the story. And you see some of the seeds of that growing from this early love relationship, this romance of Dee and Charles. What do you think is the single most important historical event that marked the end of Jim Crow and the beginning of the civil rights movement? Well, if I could choose one historical event, I would say it was World War II. Because, you know, I was thinking back during my research that even though there were African Americans involved in the Revolutionary War, Spanish Americans, Civil War, and I remember that film of glory with uh, Denzel Washington. It was really an eye opener. And also World War One. It was the World War Two that brought men in close proximity with each other. They saw each other, even though the troops were kept separate. They had African Americans involved in different phases with the white troops. And for instance. This is not in this volume. There are three books in my series, and this is like the next series. But I talk about World War II and the whole thing about Tuskegee Airmen and the Red Ball Express, which was primarily black men who drove the trucks for General Patton. And so when they got to Europe, they also saw how Europeans treated them much differently than they were treated in the United States and saw them as men. And so I think that with those different experiences, the GIs came back to the states, and that's when the civil rights movement began in earnest because there was like this historical legacy that they could see that the end of it. And if they worked hard, first of all, they felt that if they fought for their country, they could be seen as true Americans. But they also had this double victory I saw in the Tuskegee Institute that we went to, uh, looking at the airmen, planes, and their uniforms. This double victory thing kept, you know, being repeated. And in one case, it said that they had made these patches for their uniforms because the double victory was a victory abroad, which mean that they would bring that same victory home to win over Jim Crow and over the, the bad treatment that African Americans were receiving at home. So there was this intent that if we fought in Europe, then we will definitely be able to bring back a victory home because we will fight for that as well. So that is what I see as the pretty much mark the end of the Jim Crow era and the beginning of civil rights. 
there are some personal storylines explored in this novel. How do they reflect back to this period of slavery in the U.S.? Well, first of all, my ancestors were great-great-grandfather was the son of a slave. And those stories were in my family were shared as word of mouth. I thought about how much the impact of having great-grandparents and grandparents who lived through this period impacted my grandparents and my parents. So in the story, I wanted to make this very evident by way of having the characters talk about having freedom, being self-sufficient, not wanting to go back to slavery times. And there are a lot of those types of themes that I, I try to draw on. But most of all, that whole concept of having faith in God, because that's how they would get through the tough times. So there were a lot of people who followed the Lord because they wanted to make sure that they had a hope for the future. And this was in the hymns. You hear a lot of the black hymns that are still being sung today. And it was seen in their whole expression of keeping the family together, which couldn't happen during slavery times, but it became more imperative for African Americans today to do this because they knew that at that time there was no control over keeping their families together. So those themes I really try to weave into my story, and they will come out in volumes two and three in particular, that this whole sticking together as a family, having faith in God, and caring about the future generations, those are how slavery really, I think, impacted my ancestors, and hopefully I've depicted it pretty well in the story that I've written. I've been speaking with Josanne Wright Callender, author of the realistic historical fiction novel, Making Do, Growing Up Colored in the Jim Crow South. How would you like us to get your book? Oh, it's on Amazon. Definitely, if you look up Making Do, Growing Up Colored in the Jim Crow South during the Great Depression, or you could look for my name, Josanne Wright Callender, uh, you'll see both the Making Do book, and also the Happy Little Garbage Truck, which I wrote to help build children's self-esteem. As I said, I was a teacher for like 27 years, and this was my first entree into the area of writing as an author. And I wrote the book with my mom, which I think is a, just really a, a joyful period that I have in my memory. But both books are on Amazon, and also there's an audiobook tease that will be placed on the making new Amazon site, and this is going to be narrated by Phyllis Kelly, who is just a wonderful storyteller. So the whole audiobook is coming soon. We believe it'll be ready this summer, but we will have the audio tease on Amazon within the next couple of weeks. So definitely, and also mattjoeinternational.com is another way that people can pick up the book. And I'm doing a special as a $15 special rate for an autographed copy. So there are a couple of ways, but that website again is M-A-T-J-O-I-N-T-L dot com. Thank you so much for talking with us today, and we can't wait to read your book. Hey, thank you so much, Vicki. I totally appreciate your having me on. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? 
Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.